So today we're continuing our eight essential elements of the biblical Christian gospel series. Uh, as far as that series goes, the eight elements are listed in Roman numeral one, and we are on uh, element seven, letter P, small c. And um, we're doing this at the same time the, with, with the uh, five first steps of entering the kingdom, which is what element seven is about. Step three is called being baptized in the Holy Spirit, a, uh, an idea that lots of Christians in America have not experienced, nor studied, nor know about, uh, which is unfortunate. So um, we have a short version of the series on our podcast under Messages on Baptism, which is only four parts that we take people through who want to get started and, get, and, and receive that empowering of the Holy Spirit. Uh, but this is a little longer version. So on the Baptized in the Holy Spirit series, this is chapter 14, B, small 2. Um, and it's the 27th lesson. Now on that series, we have three sections. Uh, section C is called imparting or receiving Holy Spirit baptism. And so section C of this version is equivalent to chapter 4 of the, of the shorter version. Um, we're taking each of the ideas in chapter 4 and teaching on them much more thoroughly, and so forth. So last week, we were dealing with uh, a concept called biblically incomplete conversions. And it comes, if you look at Roman numeral 5, it comes under the category, both when you're helping someone get baptized in the Spirit, and just helping Christian life in general. The, The Christian life cannot be lived apart from walking in the Spirit of God. Uh, The Bible doesn't say... uh, you know, to work harder to crucify the flesh. It says that the mindset on the spirit is life and peace, and the mindset on the spirit does not desire to do the deeds of the flesh. In order to walk above the sin nature, we actually have to walk by the power of the Holy Spirit. There is no Christianity that's not empowered by the Holy Spirit. So one of the first things I start uh, asking people that I work with, because of such a watered-down gospel and such a confused atmosphere that Christianity is in today, is I ask them, do you experience the presence of God in a tangible way that you're sure is God's Spirit speaking to you when you worship both individually and corporately? And do you experience God's presence and God's voice and the power of His Spirit when you're by yourself reading His, His work? And if not, you really need to start with thinking about the gospel because you receive the Holy Spirit when you're converted. And even someone who's not yet baptized in the Holy Spirit should be able to sense the Spirit of God in their life. And in fact, that's kind of a stepping stone towards, filling, towards receiving greater fillings of the Holy Spirit, which are clearly in the New Testament. So, if, if you don't have a regular sense of God's Spirit speaking to you and leading you, and you're not experiencing what the Bible calls the peace that passes all understanding and these sorts of things, get with someone older in the Lord who can help you get there. And start by reexamining your understanding of the gospel. We uh, have a recommended foundational book list, and one of the top books on that list is an excellent book called Today's Gospel, Authentic or, or Synthetic. That would be a great book to start with. I'm also going to be talking a little bit today about John Stott's book called Basic Christianity. 
And many Christians would do well just to, to read a book like that because it covers all the things you're supposed to have gotten covered at your, at your conversion, at the start of your Christian walk. And what you find these days is a very high percentage of Christians, the vast majority, have not ever been taught some basic Christian ideas, such as what is the nature of sin? And why, why do we need a Savior instead of just to, to, to morally perfect our, ourselves? All religions of the world basically take that sense that all people are given by God, that there's something standing between you and God. There's some kind of gap between his perfection and, his, and fellowship and relationship with him and you. And religion tries to bridge, bridge that gap by various per, moral codes, self-help efforts, philosophies, and so forth. And only Jesus Christ can bridge that gap for you. And only receiving him in a regenerating power that makes you a new Christianity. You don't need more counseling than maybe you do, but you, don't, you, you need to be born again and made a new creature. And you need new motives and new attitudes working through your whole life. So we're, today we're going to continue on this incomplete conversions. So if you flip the page, last week we started to examine these 12, but I spent so much time inter, on the introduction, which I have uh, managed to spend only about five to six minutes on this week, uh, that we didn't cover many of these 12. But one of the things that we find today is because of the nature of the, the spiritual confusion, which is, you know, there are, according to the Bible, there are spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places. And there are spiritual forces of wickedness over entire nations and cultures. In America, there's a spirit of religious confusion over the whole Bible-believing culture. And to, to part of the antidote to that is to restudy everything in the Bible thoroughly on its own terms. And uh, conversion is one of these areas. Uh, the Bible actually tells us to think about whether we've been really converted or not. Jesus deals with that subject in several of his parables. And Christians throughout the ages, whether you're talking St. Augustine in the 5th century to Luther in the, at the time of the Reformation, uh, have asked the question, is, what is true and false conversion? And if you've never spent any time on that, I think that's actually quite foolish when you consider that where you're at with God what the purpose of your life is, and what the trajectory of your whole life for all eternity is based on whether you've been fully biblically converted or not, or whether you've been falsely converted. Uh, if you don't know the answer to that question and haven't studied it much, I think you're living a, uh, a non-examined lifestyle. And even the moral philosophers of the pagan religions like Socrates and Greek philosophy says that a life that's not examined is not worth living. To, to be in places spiritually that you've never really studied out that much is, of all things, a haphazard approach to life. Why would you live your life that way? So Paul addresses this issue when he's talking to the Corinthians. In 2 Corinthians 13.5, he says, Test yourselves to see if you're in the faith. 
examine yourselves. Now, most of you went to at least high school. Some of you went to college. So all of you are at least familiar with the idea of test or examinations. And you might not have really enjoyed them much, <laughs> uh, depending on your upbringing and how far you went in school and whether you ever got to a point where you actually liked school. I got to a point where I loved school by college and then by grad school. By the time I finished my master's degree, not so much. <laughs> so, uh, but, uh, but I looked forward to test because I knew I was going to nail it and I knew I was going to get uh, 95 to 100% and I, because I knew I had tested myself and I was prepared. And what Paul's saying is, examine yourself to see if you're in the faith. Don't go into the test... You know, I'm, I'm so amazed that I, I talk to college students all the time that I'll ask, how did you do on the test? And they go, I don't know. I'm like, well, if you didn't know, you don't, didn't do very well. <laughs> if you aced it, you know. <laughs> right? You know, you might know, well, there were 25 math problems, and there's one I wasn't certain of. So I might have a 96%, or I might have 100%, depends on whether I got that one right. But you know. Test yourself to see if you're in the faith. Examine yourself. Now, interesting, some English translations change the word test and examine around. So some say examine yourself to see if you're in the faith. Test yourself. Now, I don't know what's the difference between an examination and a test, but I guess maybe an examination is more complete. I don't know. Uh, there's two different Greek words used there. So do you not recognize this about yourself, that Jesus Christ is in you? Now, he's not saying that you've gone through uh, you know, good counseling principles and you have a wise lifestyle. The issue is, is Jesus Christ in you? Do you know his voice? He said, my sheep know my voice. And he said, a time is coming when the dead, and he's talking about those who don't know God, when the dead will hear my voice and those who hear it will live. And a person who's been born again is a person who knows the voice of God by the Holy Spirit through the scriptures. As, you know, Andy was given a uh, preview of his class for, that, he, that starts today. We're doing a survey of the whole Bible from 130 to 3. And uh, not, not going to survey the whole Bible from 130 to 3, but we're introducing the class from 130 to 3. And we're going to run the class for about a year. And one of the things, Andy uh, started by doing a very clever uh, literary device where he basically said, uh, you know, I talked to God this morning about this and that, and he listed a whole bunch of subjects, vocation, marriage, whatever. And, uh, and then he said, well, how did I talk to God about all these things? And then he held up the scriptures and said, I talked to God about these things because, while I was reading his word. The mouth speaks out of the abundance that fills the heart, and the, and the scripture is the abundance of what filled God's heart. And when you have Jesus Christ in you, you will be able to hear the scriptures speak to you. They won't be words on a page. They will be spirit and life. And you will know that that happened. You won't have a bunch of doubts about whether that happened. If you have a bunch of doubts about that happened, thank God for that. Because that's God's gift to cause you to, to examine yourself to be more certain. If you have doubts as to whether you've actually met the Lord and can hear his voice and whether God is speaking to you when you're reading your Bible, that's a God-given thing. 
And it's just like if you have difficulty pressing, bench pressing 20-pound barbell, uh, when in fact you're going to need 100 pounds for whatever your sport you're doing or whatever, that's not necessarily bad. It's just a way of knowing where you're starting. <laughs> and, uh, and if 100 pounds is the goal, you're not going to meander into that. You're going to have to change some things if you're going to, if you're going to change that. And you're going to have to find out some things. First thing you need to find out is what you're doing. So, um, in terms of testing ourselves, the thing that I want you to be sure that you understand is there are inner signs and there are outward observable signs. Only you know, now you can discuss with an older Christian the inner signs, and that's not unwise to do, that's very wise to do. But only you know if the inner signs are happening. The outward signs, everyone can observe. And, and people can use them to help you go back, not to do more of these five things, but let these five things be more the symptom. Don't, don't cure the symptom. Go back and reexamine the root problem and that is to test yourself to see if you're really in the faith and if Christ is in you and if you're walking by the biblical Christian gospel instead of today's uh, performance-based or confused or, or various gospel things. So for the rest of the time today, I want to get into that sort of thing. And the, f the first thing I want to talk about is the inner signs. There will be a knowing that in your heart, you'll feel this in your spirit, in your heart, that you have trusted Jesus and you're no longer trusting performance, religion, any other thing. You will know that you have no ability to be right before God, um, that only he can grant you righteousness as a gift by his grace. Now that knowledge may come to you while you're reading excellent uh, books to start on that subject, like Romans or Galatians. But you will know that you know that you've trusted Christ for your forgiveness, for reconciliation to God, uh, and you will know that you are hearing the voice of God now. Whereas you'll know that before you weren't. You'll know there were times in your life when you didn't know the voice of God. Now, that can be a little tricky, because if you grow up in a spiritually mature enough home, you may know the voice of God from a very, very early age. And you may not even be able to remember a time when you didn't know the voice of God. But if you know the voice of God, you'll know that you know the voice of God. <laughs> and there would definitely have been a process where the other things of conversion came along with knowing the voice of God, where it won't be your parents' faith anymore. It'll be your faith, where you won't be uh, like the the Pharisee who said, "I thank God that I'm, you know, that I'm not like other men." But you'll be more like the publican who, uh, you know, comes to understand the depth of your sin. That's one of the great dangers of, of living in a Christian home: is you're just as much a sinner as someone who used to rob banks and and kill people and deal drugs or whatever you might think is on the bad list, You're on the, you, you committed sins worthy of, of death. And you need a Savior, not more counseling. And you need to see 
the depth of your own sin is every bit as great as any sinner you've ever known. And until you're more like the publican, if you remember, the publican went home justified, but the Pharisee who thought he wasn't like other men, Jesus doesn't even credit him with praying to God. He says that he was praying thus to himself. Wow, he doesn't even acknowledge that the guy's the guy directed his prayers toward God, right? But Jesus didn't even say he was praying to God. He said he's praying to himself when he said, I thank you, Lord, that I'm not like other men. If you still have any of that in your spirit, you haven't come to know the Lord yet. You should have a sense that I'm the chief of the sinners. You know, when Paul says that he's the chief of the sinners, that's on my list of that's, we were joking about list of questions to ask, you know, God, when you get to heaven. And way down on the list, I want to know if Jesus and the disciples skip stones across the Galilee, Sea of Galilee. But uh, up on the list, I want to know when Paul says that he was the chief of sinners, is that actually true that in some sense Paul was more sinful? I think what Paul is saying is we should all have that sort of conviction. I think if you really understand who you were outside of Christ, you should be able to make a good case for I was the chief among sinners. Now, don't sit around at lunch and, say, and try to outdo one another with what, how deep of a sinner you were. Because <laughs> there's no, uh, you know, I, whenever I hear sense that in people's uh, spirit, I always go, you win. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> you know. Because lost is lost. When you're, not, when you're lost, you don't know where you are. And you don't really know if you're 100 miles lost or 2 miles lost. You're lost. <laughs> and uh, found is found. So the inner signs will include a deep felt sense that you're trusting only in Jesus. It will include an inner assurance that there's forgiveness of sins. And it'll include a witness from the Holy Spirit that's talked about in Romans 8 that you are the son or daughter of God. And you'll know that you know that. And you won't have any doubts. And again, don't get condemned if you don't have that. Get more serious about wrestling with the gospel. Because there are thousands of people sitting in pews today who've prayed sinner's prayer that have not wrestled at all with the Lord in the gospel and are, are yet unconverted. You will know by these inner signs that you'll know that you're trusting only in Christ. You'll have a, a very subjective experience where you know your sins are forgiven. I can remember several experiences in my first few uh, Months when I was being convicted by the Holy Spirit, I knew Jesus was real. I decided to be a Christian. I was still doing a lot of drugs, and I was under conviction by the Holy Spirit that that wasn't so good. And I was trying to, you know, like all addicts, I was bargaining, <laughs> you know, for time. Like I'll quit next Thursday, after, you know, after the, and if you know if I quit now, can I have like a mountain of pot in heaven or you know. Yeah, all addicts have little bargaining things that they, they go through. And I was kind of nowhere with the Lord. But little by little, God began to change my heart to want to be right with the Lord. And I can remember to the point of tears on several occasions just weeping before God and having this sense that I was cleansed. One particular experience uh, that I still remember being in the basement of our house. My mom was... Uh, 
very, and is a very dedicated Christian, 90 years old now. And, uh, and I'm talking to her about the gospel and forgiveness and so forth. And I just kind of broke down. And, and uh, I finally kind of came to a place where, you know what? If God doesn't want me to do drugs, I want to be right with God. I, th- this drugs thing is my God and my idol, but I want to be forgiven and I want to be cleansed and I want to be right with God. And I just ended up breaking down weeping and I, you know, had this peace of the Holy Spirit coming over came, that came over me where I knew that my conscience had been renewed and my conscience was clean again. And that was an important step. Uh, within a couple months, I was completely out of that drug culture and seeking God and studying and all that stuff. So now, those inward changes will be, incomp- uh, be accompanied by outward uh, changes that you can observe. And if you are helping people grow in the Lord, you can observe them. But don't just tell them, do more of change number two. Because their problem isn't that they need to do more of change number two. Their problem is they need to test themselves to see if they're in the faith and they, have, they need a more biblically complete experience of conversion. So the first one is a hunger for God's word. 1 Peter 2, 1 through 3 tells us to lay aside all maliciousness and all wickedness and to long for the pure milk of God's word if you have tasted that the Lord is kind. One of the things I'm most shocked about in today's contemporary Christianity, this week I sat in on purpose and, and just kept my mouth shut and listened to a number of Christians in our church talking at various social venues. And I was amazed at how many people who knew very little about Scripture really knew a ton about pop culture. And I mean, they knew TV shows, movies, music. They could have probably written an introductory book on pop culture for a college class on pop culture. <laughs> but they probably couldn't write an introductory teaching about anything about the Bible. Nor, uh, you know, in many cases, they're just starting to ask biblical questions for the first time. Now, if that's the case... I just want to encourage us that the Bible, John is doing an, a great series on, on the Gospel of James, or the Gospel of James, the Epistle of James, and, uh, and one of the things James says is that pure and undefiled religion is to visit widows and so forth, and to keep one unblemished or unstained by the world. I just wonder sometimes, like, why we still want to be where so much of the church is, where we're really experts on worldliness. But we're not so much experts on the love of God in the pursuit of God. And I'm not trying to lay legalism on you. I'm trying to say, ask God to change your heart that you're more zealous. I was in several meetings this week that I just decided to uh, just keep observing and waiting and, and so forth. But I met with several young people this week that I thought, wow, they need a lot more love for God and a lot more zeal and a much deeper conversion. They're just not that passionate about these things. And the things they are passionate about are 
things like movies and football and sports teams and all kind of worldly things. And I'm thinking, wow, do you, do you get that intense about your love for God? Or, or you know, could, would you make a whip and drive the money changers out of the temple? Because <laughs> you... I get it, you get upset when Ohio State loses or whatever, but what, what, what kind of passion do you have about the reputation of God in the earth? So a hunger for God's word comes with salvation. Um, I hope my daughter Carla will forgive me. She's not here, so uh, you can wrap me out. I tell this story all the time, probably embarrasses her. But it's one of my favorite memories in life. You know, after she was born, the nurses took her away from Catherine for like five or ten minutes and kind of cleaned her up and wrapped her in, I guess you would call them swaddling cloths or whatever, wrapped her in some warm stuff and so forth, brought her back to Catherine, and Catherine was holding her, and Carla began to nurse. And she was 10 to 20 minutes old, but she was hungry. Because if you're alive, you're hungry. I know some of you single guys. If you're alive, you're hungry. <laughs> you know? And, uh, and uh, you know, she hadn't even listened to my seven-part series on the importance of nursing yet. <laughs> nor, how, nor how to go about it. I say that sarcastically because it scares the heck out of me that we have to plead for people to know their Bible so much in our time. And so few, few Christians really do. What do you spend your time on? You can't have it both ways. I remember reading the book, The Disciplined Life. It changed my life so much. I read it once a year for the first 10 years I was a Christian. And one of the sections in it really helped me. It said, if you want to become an expert on New Testament literature, you've got to say goodbye to the funny papers forever. And I, I actually used to love reading the comics in the newspaper. <laughs> and uh, I haven't read it in many years, but I'm, I'm not saying that you... The, the, the thing is, you've got to make some choices. And you can't have all the entertainment our culture tells you to have and a strong walk with the scriptures. You just can't. There isn't time to be an expert on everything. So what are you going to be an expert on? I hope you're going to be an expert on God and his heart and his ways and his word in such a way that you can multiply that into other people. John 8, 30 through 32, Jesus says, If you abide in my word, then you're truly my disciples, and you'll know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So reading the reverse negative, if you don't abide in his word, then you're a false disciple. And the word abide is the Greek word mento, men, meno, not mento, M-E-N-O, uh, mu, epsilon, uh, nu, omicron. Uh, and if, if uh, it means to dwell in continually, to live in it, it's a way of life kind of word. When Jesus says in John 15, abide in me, he uses the same word. Dwell in me. Are, you, are there parts of your day where you have a sense of God's presence and voice and his spirit leading you, but other parts not so much? That's not normal. That's subnormal. 
And you, the first step I could help you with, if you could start to call subnormal Christianity subnormal and insist that you're not going to live there, that would radicalize your life. It's normal to be led by the Spirit of God and sense His presence all day long and be empowered by His peace that passes understanding. Joy is a fruit of the Holy Spirit. Not just one of the Dickerson's kids. <laughs> uh, peace is a fruit of the Holy Spirit. Too bad we don't have someone named Peace to continue that. Secondly, lifestyle changes. Uh, we're going to look at repentance in a minute, but Matthew 3, 8 through 10, I incur- included that because it says um, to bring forth fruit in keeping with your repentance. See, a lot of people saw that the religious thing to do was to get in on John the Baptist's baptism. Everybody was doing it. But certain people came, namely the Pharisees and so forth, and they were pretenders. They, they, didn't, they weren't under any conviction of sin. They, they, were, uh, they were coming under false pretenses. And John told them to bring forth fruit appropriate to repentance. James 2, again, since uh, uh, John is teaching out of James, uh, even so faith, if it has no works, is dead being by itself. But someone may well say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without the works and I'll show you my faith by my works. You know, you believe God is one? Big deal. Even the demons believe that. But they're not followers of Christ. And they don't demonstrate their faith by outward deeds. You will want to make changes in your lifestyle if you've been converted. And you will want to do that all the time. Your entire Christian life, you'll be looking at your lifestyle and saying, God, what would you have me change? Because some of what you have to change changes as you get older. I can't eat the kinds of things I ate when I was you know, one of the single guys, uh, 23 years old or something. I'm blimpy enough. So, you have, you know, things have to change. First John 2 tells us that if anyone says he knows Jesus, that he ought to walk in the same manner as Jesus. Wow. Check that one off your list. Thirdly, you desire for all the things of God, all his will, his ordinance, etc. You often, when you're helping someone come to Christ, I often have this conversation. Do I have to, to be a Christian? <laughs> right, everyone? And all of you have probably had that discussion with God at times. Like, do I have to, Lord? Uh, you know, some of you, it's maybe been tithing or whatever your issue was or giving up sweets or who knows. Do I have to? You will not have the minimum mentality if you've been converted. You just won't. In Acts 8, when, when Philip is talking to the Ethiopian court official, he says, look, there's water. He didn't know much about water baptism. He saw that in Jerusalem, when people came to Christ, they water baptized him. So he said, I want in on this Christian thing, so there's water. Why can't I get baptized? That's part of being a Christian. Let's do this. 
right? If you know, look at your own heart and life. If you have too much of the do I have to give this up and that up and the other thing up, and I'm not talking about embracing legalism. Because, you know, there's a lot of non-biblical do I have to's out there that you shouldn't be submitting to. But there's a lot of biblical do I have to's. That's why, God, you need to study the scriptures thoroughly, and you need counsel from someone who's older and wiser in the things of the Lord. Sometimes you pick the wrong do I have to's, and you're still being held back by the things you should have you renounced and gotten free from. Uh, we have an excellent article on that subject called Discipleship for Super Christians Only by Dallas Willard which is the first chapter of his book. If you want to, it's not on the foundational list because it's kind of a longer, more involved book, but it's a, still an excellent book called The Great Omission, Reclaiming Jesus' Essential Teachings About Discipleship, in which he's trying to make the point that this American mentality of I can make Jesus my Savior without making him my Lord is not biblically based at all. And you'll know when you're not fully converted because you'll have a do-I-have-to spirit. Fourthly, desire for biblical Christian fellowship and accountability. I recently was working with a young guy that I had had Bible studies with a couple years ago, and he'd even gotten baptized in the Holy Spirit and so forth. But one of the things that often becomes clear is a lot of people live double lives. And they got all kind of stuff going on in their life that they're not being very honest with anybody about. Don't be honest with the whole church. There's a reason we have three elders. We have three elders that we're trying to raise up. We, uh, we have a leadership team. Make sure you're dealing with someone mature enough to deal with it. There's quite a few people who aren't necessarily in our leadership team who could handle this. But... Uh, don't have things in your life that you're not walking in the light with somebody about. That, because guess who lives in the darkness? The prince of darkness is Satan. He wants to keep you on his playground, and his playground is defined by legal issues, not geographically. You can go to church all you want. But if you're not walking in the light as he is in the light, you don't have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus Christ is not cleansing you from all sin. 1 John 1 says, if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with each other. Because indeed, he says earlier in the chapter, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ, by the Holy Spirit. And that's why he's writing these things, so you could be a part of that fellowship. God has invited you into the councils of the Trinity. The Father, Son, and the Spirit have had a perfect communion and fellowship for all eternity. And as a Christian, you've been invited into that fellowship. Do we live our lives like we live in that fellowship? Like I'm in the fellowship of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit? Wow, that would might change a little bit of what you do for lunch. <laughs> I'm not talking about your food, but what your priorities are. Lastly, a desire to, to proclaim Jesus. In Luke 24, it says that the, after Jesus was recognized by the two disciples on the road to Emmaus in the breaking of the bread, 
uh, it says, we're not, they, they talk about, boy, we should have realized that was Jesus all along. Wasn't our hearts burning within us when he was explaining the, his, how to find him in, Moses, in the scriptures and so forth? But it was something that people miss sometimes is it says they returned to Jerusalem at that very hour. Now, if you know anything about ancient roads and so forth, they were seven miles outside of Jerusalem. To travel after dark to Jerusalem would be like walking unarmed through the worst neighborhood of Los Angeles or wherever you could think of might be a violent place on earth. I mean, they were risking their lives to do that. But they couldn't wait to find the 12 in the upper room and say, we've seen the Lord, and he's risen indeed. No one had to tell them. They didn't take the seven-part course on why you need to evangelize. If it's real to you, you'll be telling it. Because the mouth speaks out of the abundance that fills the heart. It's amazing to me how many people tell me about their investments, their vocation, their sales job, their, the girl they like right now. and they, uh, they have all kind of things on their mouth and their mind and their heart. But if, if it's real to you, you'll be telling people about Jesus. It won't need to be a program. It'll be a passion. And when you look at every social issue, people change on the social issues when they come to Christ. Not before that. Culture of life versus the culture of death. Those who hate God and hate wisdom love death. All, all unbelievers have, have a, a death wish and they're gradually committed to suicide, depending on their boldness enough. They're either drugging themselves to death or smoking themselves to death or eating themselves to death or, or whatever. How fast they do it has a lot to do with how much they fear death because deep down inside every lost person knows that they're not in good shape. That's why the Bible talks about through the, the bondage of fear, the fear of death. And they're still afraid of death. But on the other hand, they have a death wish. So they embrace all kind of things in their lifestyle that they know are killing them. And they have no value for other people's lives. You want to, you want to solve uh, the abortion issue? Restore the church. Because the Christianity we have today is not strong enough to do much about the culture. Join a group that really takes restoring the church quite seriously. Uh, the desire to witness and proclaim Jesus Christ. Obviously, I'm not going to finish this teaching today either. Uh, in Acts 4.20, I love, after Peter and John are arrested, and they're warned and told not to speak anymore in the name of Jesus in the city of Jerusalem, and they say, you're, you're intending to bring this man's blood on us. Because their message was, you crucified your Messiah. But this was according to God's foreordained plan, and God raised him from the dead. And they were clearly laying the guilt of killing Jesus on the Roman government, the Sanhedrin, 
including the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the people who cried out, crucify him, crucify him. And they were clearly telling people to be saved from that perverted generation. People think it means all perverted generations. It means a specific perverted generation that Jesus had prophesied was, was going to be destroyed within one generation, which happened in, in 67 to 70 AD when the Roman armies were, were sovereignly called by God to surround Jerusalem and destroy it. Because God was done with those people. And they were in the city of Jerusalem saying, this message of salvation, repent for having killed this, the Messiah, receive him as your Lord and Savior, and be part of his family. Get covenantally related to God again, instead of actually being religious while you're actually a hater of God. Which is where much of the church is living today. Believe me, people think we're overstating this restoring the church thing, but we are not. So when they're told to stop this, what do they say? They say, we cannot stop speaking the things we've seen and heard. As far as I know, I've read the Bible through quite a few times. I, don't, I cannot think of any other scripture where they were able to blame shift and God approved of it. You know, Adam said, the woman thou hast given me. He blamed both the woman and then he by the way, you gave her, it's your fault, God. You gave me this darn woman in the first place, right? Of course, Eve uh, thought, well, that didn't work out so good for Adam, so, uh, so she blamed the serpent. <laughs> it's amazing how many men blame their wives for things. You can tell when someone's not converted because they always blame their wife. <laughs> really, I mean, it's amazing. And, uh, and then, uh, or else they blame the devil. <laughs> well, the devil made me do it. There was a comedy routine in the 70s by Flip Wilson. That was his, his line. He was making fun of his church upbringing. The devil made me do it. The devil didn't make you do it. These people, they actually say, we can't help ourselves. We, have, we can't stop speaking the things we've seen and heard. And God endorses that. By, by the signs and wonders that follow when they keep doing it. And the fruit that came about. That's amazing, because it's the only place in the Bible where you can get away with blame shifting. They blamed God in that we've seen what these things that God has done, so we can't stop. Are you in that place? Does that describe the reality of your, I can't stop this witnessing. I'd rather, you know, I've, ha I've actually had to work with people who got fired from jobs because they were witnessing too much. I would rather work with that kind of a problem than someone who never witnesses because they're just, you know, afraid of man. Lots of people never witness in our day and age. Lots of people have never led anyone to Christ. That's just not normal. That is subnormal. And the first thing you can do to help yourself is say, Lord, I'm sub-biblical and I'm some subnormal and tell somebody about it who's older in the Lord, who could help you get to work, start on a path toward normal, because you're not going to get to normal overnight. It may take one year, it may take two years, but make sure you're going toward biblically normal. And not, I wasn't brought up that way. <laughs> one of the great lines of America. <laughs> I wasn't brought up any, you know, like, let's not even go there. But, uh... <laughs> What does how you were brought up have to do with anything? I, I just don't understand that sometimes. 
All right. Uh, let's see if I can get a couple more of these. We, d- we talked about lacking conviction last week. But in, there's a whole message in this series on what conviction of sins is, and we covered that a lot last week. What I don't, we didn't cover is I want to talk a little bit about Jesus and the richer and the ruler. Because well, here's, here's a reason that a lot of people aren't very convicted these days, especially people who've grown up in churchianity. You've never killed anybody technically, <clears throat> just in your heart. You've maybe never even actually committed adultery, except you know, with pornography or something, or whatever. You know, like somehow you have this idea that you're a pretty good Christian person. I don't know where you got it from. <laughs> you, you know, you grew up and you, you know, like what, when I heard a message on making restitution, I realized I never stole stuff from stores, so I didn't have to go back and pay them back. You know, I spent the first year of my Christian life learning enough money to pay back all the places I used to steal from. <laughs> oh, well. Thankfully, my father was all for the plan, um, being the good Christian man that he was, although he would have loved if I could have used that money toward, toward college <laughs> instead of paying back all the stores I used to rip off. But, you know, if you, with Jesus and the rich young ruler, you know, he's concerned about his status before God, and he says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, you know the commandments, do them. And so he wants to be clear. So he's at least got some zeal toward God, but, but he didn't have enough zeal toward God. He says, which ones? Jesus lists all the commandments that have to do with loving your neighbor as yourself. He says, don't steal, don't lie, bear false witness, don't covet, and so forth. Don't commit adultery. And the, the guy is able to say, honestly, I haven't done any of those. All these I have observed since my youth up. Maybe you grew up in a churchianity where you're able to say that for that side of the equation. But Jesus said, one thing you still lack, go sell everything and follow me. Because the guy had a love for money. And what is it in your life that's keeping you from making God number one? Is it the fear of man? Is it your love for sports? Is it your love for indulging the flesh with how much you sleep and how much you eat and how, how many creature comforts you have? What's standing between you and the first few commandments? To have no other gods besides him. Because one of the things that I, that I am deeply aware of as the pastor, you know, we went through a little visitation of the Spirit this January toward May, and I think God is wanting to do that again, but I think it's hitting a lot of frustration as God's Spirit is being poured out, because a lot of us just aren't loving God very much. The truth of the matter is, you know, uh, that's something you have to do alone in your prayer closet with your Bible. But believe me, the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit is what this is all about. Is that you can go to church a lot, You can be involved in all the social activities of the fellowship every night. You know, one of the things I sometimes worry about is we actually have an event almost every night and every day in community. And there's always some people who don't partake enough of that. Then there's some people who partake of everything so much that you wonder how much time they're actually spending time alone with God. But you got to have some kind of balance there. 
And sometimes you need to say, no, I'm not going to the Wednesday night prayer meeting or the Thursday night this or the Friday this because this night. And don't lie to yourself and go watch a movie or, or turn, tune in the Penguins game or something. Got to pick on Terry. Or, uh, you know, I, and I'm not saying don't watch college football or anything like that. I'm not trying to preach legalism. What I'm saying is, where's your priorities? And are you making time to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness? Is, are you seeking the Lord when he may be found? And guess when he may be found? He may be found, he tells us this, that if you go into your prayer closet and pray to him in secret, that's where you're going to find him. Now, you may have to take your car out in the country. I used to have a plastic thing I put on my steering wheel, and I'd put my Bible in there, and I'd go out somewhere and turn off my cell phone so no one knew where I was for three or four hours. You maybe can do that at your apartment or your home, but you really have to be realistic. Maybe there's too many distractions at your apartment and your home. Maybe you need to go find a booth in the library somewhere. But find somewhere that you can seek him in, in private. Because guess what? If you seek him with all your heart, you're going to find him. Amen. And you're not going to find him in, the, in, in the, every way you need, just at the meetings. So that's actually enough for today. We'll keep on this subject. Uh, this could actually be a series in itself. I hope you understand that. We're really trying to look at biblically incomplete conversions. Again, their source is often the confusion of our day, the compromise of our day. Uh, but first and foremost, examine them in ourselves. Don't pitchfork this. I hope my wife's hearing this. That's called playing pitchfork with the word, right? I sure hope uh, brother so-and-so got this one. <laughs> Don't do that. Let it hit your life. Examine your life. Ask yourself, am I as zealous for God as, as he wants me to be? Amen.